Go Perth. Go Perth. Perth. Hey there. Welcome to Hot Takedown. <laughs> this is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is March 6th, 2020, and we are coming to you live from the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference here in Boston. Hey, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming out. It's great to see you all. I'm Sarah Ziegler. I'm the sports editor at 538. <laughs> Joining me on stage is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Sarah. Oh, Neil. How's it going? Good. Yes, yes. Please applaud. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we're also thrilled to be joined by 538 editor-in-chief Nate Silver. Welcome, Nate. Hey, guys. Nate, it's really a treat to have you. I mean, I know how slow the political calendar is right now, so I'm glad that, you know, we could fill in the gaps for you with sports. I, like, actually pulled off the wake-up-at- 5 a.m. thing to get work done, which like never usually works, right? Don't but, you normally just stay up until 5 a.m. to get work done? Uh, I <laughs> yes. did, but I had, like, two margaritas and two beers in, like, 45 minutes last night because bars here close at, like, 8 p.m. or something. <laughs> So I thought waking up early would be better. <laughs> that, does, that does make sense. Um, yeah, well, we're thrilled to be here at Sloan among our people, people who care about sports and analytics. And so this is a great, a great time for us. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Neil, this is your like 10th Sloan conference? I think it might be. Yeah. I, the first one I went to uh, was the one right after they moved it from actually being on MIT's campus. So yeah. The first time I came to Sloan, I was like, wait, it's not at MIT? And then I got here and was like, oh, there are a billion people here. Yeah, no, it's not at MIT. That makes sense. And Nate, you've been doing Sloan since the beginning too, right? I didn't go to the, any, the MIT one, so probably about, about as many as Neil. Yeah, probably. we're dueling for yeah. most Sloan attendance. So on today's show, we'll discuss how 538's new NBA player rating, Raptor, has performed in its first year. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. On his show, The Hottest Take, our friend Bill Simmons recently had this to say about the influence of statistics in the NBA. The nerds ruined baseball, <laughs> and now they're coming for basketball. We have to stop them. What a take. So this year, 538 launched its NBA player rating, Raptor, which one could argue is bringing more nerdiness to basketball. But are we really ruining the sport, or are we more accurately reflecting and understanding what's happening on the court? Nate, let's dive into this. How has Raptor performed in its first year? So we're really pleased with it. Three quarters of the way through the year, um, we've been kind of tracking how it performs against Vegas Vegas team total lines as well against other systems. And it seems to be as of a week ago, I've been a little bit busy since then. Um, <laughs> it was solidly ahead of Vegas, which is pretty hard to do. All our polls um, for this are pre-Super Tuesday. <laughs> Pre-Super Tuesday, yeah. Um, and it was kind of tied with Pippum. Uh, I know there are a lot of acronyms here, right? Pippum's another good system, right? And ahead of everything else by some margin as far as, as systems go. By the way, this is the crowd to throw out just crazy acronyms. But now there's been a whole revolution. There's like a new BPM and a new RPM. So I think Raptor is part of this kind of, I think of it as generation 3.0 of NBA metrics. I think right? that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you think of, you know, player efficiency rating as like, you know, uh, the first generation wind shares, that kind of thing, then moved on to, 
you know, real plus minus, box plus minus 1.0, and then now, um, yeah, you know, they've overhauled, ESPN overhauled real plus minus recently. Uh, new BPM came out, I think, just in the last couple weeks at Basketball Reference. And then, uh, of course, our, our wonderful friend Raptor, also <laughs> in the mix. So has Raptor added to the analytics landscape in the way you intended it to or had maybe hoped it would? I think I'll, I'll hear people talking about Raptor, right? And we've heard stories of like agents and players starting to use Raptor. And I think I've heard that, you know, obviously um, there are obviously some teams, I'm sure Daryl, who have their own better versions, right? But like we think it's like... It's, um, called, it's called Rocket. Right? Rocket, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Regression optimized. The K, <laughs> is, the, the K is tricky. We'll work on that. Yeah. Kurtosis. I don't know. Nice. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's kind of like kind of finally giving fans like a version of like kind of the way the average analyst savvy team is thinking, right? Which is not to say you can't develop innovations and other things like we don't account in Raptor for synergy between different types of players, right? We don't account for, um, for the effects of coaching. Um, there are definitely big things. And people would say, you know, you have a pretty good perspective on offense. On defense, we're maybe kind of half the way there, right? Um, so there's a lot of things still to look at and to improve, but like, but I think the reason why we and like four other people had this idea at the same time is because there were, you know, there's a lot more data now than there used to be. There is a lot more ability to move beyond kind of just box score stats. Um, and there's actually like now six years worth of player tracking data, six and a half now, 6.7, right? Yeah. Um, which is enough to like actually do something with and check out empirically and see kind of what works and what doesn't. Some things work very well and some things don't. And a lot of things work if you know what you're doing and can be a little bit dangerous otherwise. Um, and at first, like, we didn't necessarily know what to make. I think even, you know, teams were struggling to try to figure out what do you do with this new data? You know, how much weight do you give to it as opposed to some of the stuff that we were more familiar with and comfortable with and, and knew was predictive? And so now, with the benefit of, of more years, you do get to have that sense of, you know, this is how we value it, how we can use it, you know, in, in ways that it fills in the gaps. And in some cases, it has superseded stuff that, that would have been in one of the older generations of models, right? Yeah, no, I mean... Um you know, I think, for example, like the opponent's shooting data is something where we kind of use it in kind of a half-assed way briefly, and then, but like, it turns you out... You mean Draymond? Draymond. <laughs> I like Draymond. Now, what it's did good. Draymond stand for? I don't remember at all. Defensive, I don't... I'm, yeah. I'm too tired. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear us try to rem half-remember backgrounds anyway. <laughs> what was, what was Jeff Bagwell? Jeff Bagwell. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Joint estimate featuring fan graphs and... Baseball reference. And baseball reference... Uh, war equally leveling lists, yeah. something like so, that. Yeah. Jeff Bagwell, everybody, great player, <laughs> Hall of Famer. Like two people walked out during that. Yeah, yeah. they're, they're like, like, we don't want to hear about merging us. wars together. <laughs> Fangrass for life. Um, but no, it turns out that like actually having looking at two point interior defense is quite valuable. Looking at three point defense, the way the NBA characterizes shots is not very valuable. It's pretty. It's pretty random. Um, it's very noisy, right? Like, it's almost sort of yeah, totally for, random. So for one thing is if I am this far away from you or farther, right, you might still be the nearest defender on a wide-open shot. That creates one problem, right? Um, also, you know, you're often closing out on someone, so you might not be that close to the moment of the shot per se, but it can have, like, a fair amount of influence. And also there's, like, quite a bit of, like, randomness in, in three-point defense. Um, so, yeah, there are things we, we could use more data on. The NBA is aware of this stuff, right? We talk to them. Um, you know, help defense is something and switching, which is something that, like, um, that is problematic, right? Um, 
pressure on the perimeter. I mean, interior defense we can measure pretty well, right? But pressure on the perimeter and how you even want to approach defense on the perimeter, I think, is like a lot more of an open question, potentially. Yeah. Um, are, are we ever going to be able to solve that, you know, the defensive metrics just because of the complications involved in, in NBA defense? I think we can get a lot. I mean, I think there's still a fair amount of low-hanging fruit is what I would say, right? Um, the NBA is working on different types of, like, pressure scores where it's, like, um, you know, literally how close are you to the average man, but in ways that, um, that for example, deny relevant passing lanes and so forth. And so, so they're very aware of these problems. I think we have, like, kind of one or two more years worth of lemonade to squeeze out of the lemons before we get into <laughs> kind of the really hard interactive type problems yeah and it does seem like the next step would be something like trying to figure out sort of like spatial control like which players are in control of what territory we've seen this in soccer um a a lot uh with trying to use tracking data to basically say you know have you tilted the court in favor i guess in their case the pitch (laughs) in in favor of your team soccer words are are happening um look at me with that yeah trying to basically map out okay you compared with an average player at your position or in your role, are you controlling more space on the court and limiting the opponent's, you know, expected points per possession on that? That's probably the next step. And and the great thing about Raptor is that it's modular. You know, we we can slot things into and out of it and kind of make improvements to it without necessarily overhauling the whole system from scratch. Well, that's a good question. So with what we know about the season so far, what kinds of things are you hoping to adjust for the next iteration of Raptor? So there is some stuff in terms of like, how do you incorporate current season stats with the prior that because we had never run Raptor in season before, we never knew what like Raptor looked like after 10 games that we just kind of made wild guesses on. Um, I think it was a little bit too aggressive early in the season. Because um, things kind of moved one direction and moved back, which is usually a sign that you kind of overweighted um, the first 15 games or whatever. And so, but we can now look at that empirically. Um, I am kind of curious about the question of like, can you extract like a team or a coaching intangible? So Raptor actually estimates a pace rating for each player. It'll say if you put Russell Westbrook on this team, what influence does he have on the Rockets' pace, for instance? Um, and for that, it actually kind of allocates credit between the team and the players, right? So in theory, for other types of stats, you could say, okay, well, maybe um, the team, maybe Brad Stevens, right, has this type of impact on defense, right? And so you have to adjust any Celtic who leaves the Celtics and becomes another team, maybe a less adept defensive system, right? Um, So that's one kind of somewhat low-hanging fruit that could be incorporated into the current version of Raptor. Is there anything we can do with, like, player fit, like that's a, a thing with the Sixers right now that is being talked about a lot. How well these players fit together. They're all really, you know, there's a lot of talent individually, but how well they play together is a little bit trickier. So our model really likes yeah. the Sixers, but maybe the real world doesn't. So one thing I thought, you know, any plus mi- minus rating accounts for the quality of your teammates. I thought about having like plus minus type usage rates, right? Where, because um, by definition, a team uses 100% of its possessions, right? They're allocated to somebody. Um, and so if you have a shitty team, right, some Zach Levine or something will, you know, use 35% of possessions on, on the Bulls, um, which may or may not be optimal for the average team, but probably is totally fine for the Bulls, right? But if you have, like, a team-adjusted 
usage rate, right? And maybe if that kind of team adjusted usage rate is too high or too low, you would make adjustments to teams' offensive rating. Um, I think injuries are an area where we kind of at the kind of literal last minute actually added some logic about injuries. Where if you have a severe injury, then it will deduct your future score. Um, there are things like trying to, um, you know, we actually have a spreadsheet, right? Where like some player will we get do. injured. There's some Woj bomb. That's Sarah's favorite spreadsheet. Yeah, she has my, probably logged baby. more minutes in that Google <laughs> sheet than any human alive. And we'll have to interpret what does out indefinitely mean, right? Um, I don't know if there are ways to either automate that more or to enter more sophisticated types of assumptions, right? Because we'll kind of assume that, like, okay, here is a player who is recovering from injury, and so we'll assign him 40% of his minutes midway through recovery, Right. But it's really more likely to be playing or not. It's more of a binary that actually has some effect on, on the odds, right? So to simulate, like, okay, what's the chance of a Joel Embiid injury? And if that happens, then the Sixers are kind of totally f***ed, right? But Joel Embiid's <laughs> never partially injured, right? He's either injured, well, actually, probably is partially injured, right? But he's, you know. All the time. It's yeah. more binary than the model assumes. I think that's right. And and we should also say that there's been some work done uh, by, for instance, Todd Whitehead of Nylon Calculus had a great story just this week about basically player archetypes and their effect on fit. Uh, and so that's something that could conceivably be worked into a model where, you know, uh, one of his findings, I thought the whole thing was really interesting and encourage everybody to go uh, seek it out. But perimeter scorers playing together, actually, when you put them together, your team is more more efficient than you would expect just based on the individual ratings of the players. Whereas at the other end, uh, rim protectors, the more that you pack them into a lineup, the less efficient the team is than you would expect based on just the on-paper talent of the team. And, you know, maybe the Sixers are running into a little bit of that with their size. Uh, And so those are the types of synergies that I think uh, could be modeled in um, eventually. And maybe even, you know, there could be, you talked about a team-specific usage rate or like a team adjusted usage rate you can even adjust you know uh, each player's value based on what archetypes of players they would be playing with theoretically and you know try to figure out like which player ports his talent across the most different teams that's another definition of value is like how portable is your skill set where you can put you down in basically any configuration of lineups and you'll still add to the team whereas there are some other players obviously that are only really useful in very specific circumstances and that has a tangible effect on you know how you build a team around them but it might be invisible to a player rating system because it only knows about them in the context that they kind of created their numbers yeah i mean anytime you can adjust for something you can adjust both ways right you can both kind of say okay how will this group of players play together and also how that synergy overrate maybe a guy relative to how he would be on like an expansion team or something yeah but yeah, my intuition is that like you want kind of teammate adjusted usage to equal a hundred percent, and if you go either under or over, then you have inefficiencies. That makes sense. So, what do you guys think we're able to see about the league now with Raptor that may that maybe we weren't able to see or quantify before? I mean, it's mostly on defense, even though defense is harder. I feel like it kind of takes us from like. 30% of the way there to 55% of the way there. Whereas an offense, you know, maybe goes from 80 to 85 or something. So the offense is better, but also it's more marginal improvement wise. If you look at like the Raptor leaderboard on defense, then it's mostly guys who have strong defensive reputations, right? It's like Rudy Gobert and Marcus Smart and people like that. You know, I think 
one thing that Raptor is really good at is like, it actually is pretty balanced between the five positions, which kind of reflects the way NBA teams tend to use players. It recognizes, by the way, that like tall guys provide value mostly via defense and short guys mostly via offense. I think there were some issues with collinearity. I guess this crowd might, might kind of even know what that means, right? <laughs> but there were some issues with previous uh, box score type metrics or BPM type metrics where, number one, assisted field goals are worth a lot less. And most big men rely heavily on assisted field goals. So these systems say, okay, well, here are these guys that ha- have this high field goal percentage, right? But, like, they don't seem to be that valuable in a plus-minus system, so what's going on here? And what it would do is it would say, okay, actually, it must be that offensive rebounding has no value, right? Because those Clint Capella guys who have a lot of assisted field goals all tend to be bigs who get a lot of offensive rebounds. So, like, if you have a regression equation and one part of it is kind of f***ed up, then it will screw up everything else, too, to fit to that inappropriate model. Because it basically looks for, like, offensive rebounds are almost like a proxy for the type of player that they are. And so it associates that with that type that just happens to also be, you know, less valuable for a totally different reason and then infers that offensive rebounds must not be that valuable as a result. Right. So in theory, if you have a guy who both gets a lot of offensive boards and can create unassisted field goals. I mean, there are not a lot of guys like that, but yet, like Jokic is one of those players, right? No longer Blake Griffin, but like peak healthy Blake Griffin could actually kind of, you know, play both sides of the fence a little bit and both get some offensive rebounds and also actually create his own shots, right? Those bigs are quite valuable when you can, when you can find them. So it's really a combination of those things, not just offensive rebounds. Well, I mean, I think, look, I think you want coefficients on your parameters. This is a really nerdy podcast. <laughs> Let's should, have a big yep. hand for coefficients and parameters. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Woo. <laughs> See, these are, these are our people. <laughs> they, could cor- they should correspond to like real-life basketball actions to, to some mm-hmm. extent, right? And in general, in Raptor, like, we, are, we were not just optimizing everything to produce, to maximize in-sample fit, because six years is like a decent amount of data, it's not that much when you have a lot of collinear variables. And so it is about like, okay, um, you're making a lot of choices when you build a model. Like kind of what's a structure that makes sense kind of basketball-wise if you have two or three different ways of formulating a problem that perform equally well, roughly speaking, then you would stick to your priors based on other ways of estimating the value of a certain type of action and so forth. And so I think, I think that's proved more durable, right? Like it's performing as well out of sample as it's supposed to in sample, which isn't always the case. So let's let's talk about specific players and how Raptor views them. Um, so in December, I think, we realized that um, Will Barton of the Nuggets was like in top five in our Raptor wins he, above replacement. He's still 21st. He's, yeah. Why? Why? <laughs> why does Raptor love Will Barton? Is Raptor right to love Will Barton? You know, I look at the Raptor list sometimes and I keep... I keep going down the list until I see someone and I'm like, oh, that's ridiculous, right? <laughs> How long does I mean, it usually it take be, you? So now it takes, so we got Harden, Giannis, LeBron James, Rudy Gobert, Kawhi, Damian Lillard, Jimmy Butler, Luca, Anthony Davis, Jokic, Tatum, Trey Young, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, Chris Paul, this Kyle Lowry, so uh, Montrez Harrell, okay, Kevin Walker. Carl Anthony Towns, Hassan Whiteside, uh, you know, getting a little, and then you get Will Barton. So right in the number twenty-one, <laughs> the seventeen to twenty-three percent. Tim Hardaway Jr. is tied for twenty-first. I'm not sure I believe that either. But like, but yeah, it's about where you start to get the NBA. There's not very much luck, right? Like if you go down like a list of of like batting averages in Major League Baseball, you're going to get some guy hitting three oh eight. It's probably a two seventy hitter, right? And so there is some luck 
in the NBA. But look, he's a guy who um, shoots very efficiently. The Nuggets have been pretty good when he's been on the floor. There is an on-off component to Raptor. Um, it's like a lot of it's a lot of little stuff. Right? And I think that that's like, I mean, the on-off component is a part. It's not like a huge part. It's weighted much less than the, the box score uh, version of Raptor, which we should say also includes the tracking data inside of it. Yeah. But, um, you know, there is value to that when we were back-testing the, the plus-minus component such that it should be included and it, and it adds to the value. But then that's where you end up with, well, Barton has a great on-off split. Tim Hardaway Jr. has an even better on-off split. And I think we're straddling a line always with these ratings between how well has a player played and how good is a player. And we tend to think of those things as being the same. And mostly there's, you know, huge overlap between the two. But sometimes, like your point, Nate, about the batting average, guys can have career seasons. And it just can be because of the circumstances they're in, the role that they're in, who they're playing with. And it becomes a question. It's a valid question of how, how much credit do you give to the player who doesn't control the, the luck of being in a great circumstance, but did have to play well and, and perform the role well once they got put into that circumstance. Uh, and, and, you know, th- this comes up a lot with, uh, sorry, Sarah, I'm going to talk about hockey goalies for a second. Oh, no. uh, evaluating hockey goalies because they are so random from year to year. You, you have to sort of say, okay, a good goaltending performance is very valuable sort of post hoc when we know that it exists. Yet at the same time, it's practically impossible to predict who will be a good goalie next season. So then do we, do we have a bucket of value for goalies in which we just say, it was luck and, you know, kind of heavily regress every goalie to the mean and only give them credit for some small portion of their value over average. That maybe for a forward looking perspective, that is the right call because it reflects how much you need to regress to predict accurately going forward. But if we're talking about retrospective value, especially in a system where the team is a, is a closed system and you have to sort of add up the team value to uh, the players on the team to equal the team's total value, then it seems weird to say, okay, well, this player had this much that falls in the luck bucket of value. And so I think that that's like a constant struggle. I think in the NBA, because players are so consistent and they tend to, you know, we, we don't think of luck as being as big a part of NBA player performance as we do with hockey goalies or a player's batting average in baseball. Right. There's a lot of luck in hockey, right? Tons of it. Yeah. And also in, uh, in baseball. There's right. luck in baseball. You know. I, I wasn't criticizing hockey for having luck. There's too much, there's I can too much luck. Hockey there's too much luck in hockey. There is a lot of luck in hockey. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, and we also have like, so we explicitly have two versions of Raptor. That's one right, of which yeah. is called Predator, which you can download. It's not... Displayable. That's right. That's it. called Predator. Predator. <laughs> Predictive Raptor. It yeah, doesn't quite like work. Don't think about it too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't, it's close it's enough. <laughs> um, but that can show some differences, right? And I think um, I think people like almost go the other extreme in the NBA, where they're so deterministic they forget that there is some luck involved. Right. Um, like Predator thinks that the Bucks have gotten a little lucky this year. I don't know why. I haven't tried to pick that. Apart, exactly. They've um, they've had like they've played down to some opponents. I think a little bit, right? So they have had closer games in against teams you'd think that they would have blown out. Does, would that have something to do with that? I mean, they have played well against the top of the league as yeah. well. It might. I mean, there are various types of opponent adjustments, but they probably affect both versions. But it may be like it may be luck on 
offensive rebounding, right, or luck on three-point shooting is a case where that can matter a fair bit. And three-point um, shooting defense. I mean, they're a team that deliberately gives up a lot of threes because they know they can kind of close out and, and uh, they don't want you to get to the rim at all, uh, as our colleague Chris Herring wrote about a few weeks ago. And um, that does tend to, you know, you are more at the whims of three-point shooting opponent three-point shooting uh, when you play that style than maybe the average team would be. Raptor loves James Harden, like loves him. Why does he love him on defense? That's the thing that I think most people would. Although he has a positive defensive Raptor too, which surprised me. That's what I mean. Right. It's it's surprising that he would have a positive defensive Raptor. But so we have, we give Harden, um, he has our our highest uh, war in Raptor, like well above the Giannis Antetokounmpo who's next. Why is that? happening is that right he is the most impactful offensive player since maybe michael jordan you know and the defense i don't know about i mean the defense (laughs) like he gets a fair number of steals right i mean i think though this is like kind of you know lazy is not the right word right but like with the interior defense numbers we can detect interior defenders who take possessions off right and many superstars actually do that if you look at lebron james's defensive metrics right like when he um, when he is engaged, he is still pretty good, but he is often disengaged. It's harder to measure kind of the absence of perimeter defense, right? There's a lot of switching. Um, you know, if you look at like the number of like miles travel, which people make fun of us for using, right? But like, I think James Harden doesn't do very well by that metric, but it's a very noisy metric, right? But like, if you look at, like like the more advanced data on perimeter defense, on pressure scores and so forth, that is not yet in Raptor, then Harden does not do that well there, right? And so, you know, it is funny, though. There is, like, so let's say that his defense is, he does get a lot of steals. Like, let's say his defense is, is and he's and they're good when he's on the floor defensively. Yeah. Um, let's say his defense is league average and not plus 1.7. I think he would still be, he would fall to, like, third or fourth in impact per possession. But because he plays so darn much, which is also an overlooked benefit of James Harden, he would still be one in Raptor wins above replacement. And one thing I kind of resent a little bit is people are like, well, you know, Giannis is so good, the Bucks only need him for 31 minutes a game, which is maybe like a really good way to run the team, I agree, right? But it also means like, if he had to play those marginal extra four or five minutes a game, then his rate metrics would decline, right? So you do have to have some way, maybe we set replacement level too low, I don't know, right? But you have to have some way to like account for the fact that it's easier to be really awesome if you're playing 31 minutes a game and can pick your your spots a little bit. I was surprised to see that Harden is a whole point better defensively than LeBron because that's not the narrative, Well, but like LeBron, I mean, first of all, his teams, not this year, but in other recent years, the teams have been bad in the regular season when LeBron is on the floor defensively, Mm -hmm. right? And he was a case where like he would kind of get the big box score stats like blocks and steals, but the advanced kind of tracking base metrics kind of reveal that LeBron like is... A lot of superstars take possessions off. He's no exception in the regular season, and he's 35, right? But I don't know. I mean, the funny thing is, like, in general, people are like, oh, yeah, I like the Raptor. Actually, likes Trey Young, right? And it likes Luca, and it likes people who are these, I guess, heliocentric players is the term now, right? <laughs> um, but then, for some reason, that, like, doesn't extend to James Harden. I don't know. I think James Harden is the most underrated player in the NBA. Wow. <laughs> most underrated <laughs> to be clear not for james harden he's not the most un- no not like, uh, not according james to james harden, james is harden. Not thinking. Yeah. <laughs> he's like yeah <laughs> no, um, because like people think he's like 
Let's look like, let's look like the Bill Simmons, Zach Lowe podcast. <laughs> yeah, right? And yeah. I'm like, oh, he might be the fifth or sixth guy you want on a playoff team, right? I don't think that's right. I mean, you know, you can debate one to two to three. You can debate between him and, and him and LeBron and Giannis and Kawhi, right? Yeah. You can have that debate. And then if healthy, Steph Curry or whatever, right? But like, but he's not behind like Anthony Davis in the playoffs. It's ridiculous. I'm with you, Nate, on the idea. Maybe maybe he's not the most underrated, but maybe one of the most underappreciated superstars in NBA history. I mean, I have a particular definition of underrated, which is like, because it's not like the cardinal ranking, right? Or the order. It's like, okay, so people think he's the fifth best player in the league when he's second. It's only three points of difference, right? But it's more like it gets very nonlinear, right? And he is someone who, I don't know. I mean, the Rockets have been like a pretty darn good team, you know? I mean, by the way, Raptor has never liked Russell Westbrook that much. Um, although he's played a lot better recently, obviously, and fit in that system pretty well. Um, but like, people are like, oh, there are two superstars in the Rockets. Like, no, not really, right? There's like, <laughs> there's Russ who has turned into like a, a very useful role player, kind of, right? And there's James Harden, and I don't know. Maybe people mean James Harden and Robert Covington as the two superstars. And Covington, the stars, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> no. Um, well, so I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, how our how Raptor views rookies. Um, we yeah. talked on our last uh, podcast about the rookie of the year debate between Zion Williamson now and John Morant. Um, but Raptor doesn't like either of those guys best. The, the, the favored rookie in Raptor is Terrence Davis of the Raptors. Is that just because Terrence Davis <laughs> on is Raptors. on the Raptors? There's, to be honest. There's no pro dinosaur bias. That's just not true. We that have is our official pro, position. Yeah. <laughs> We definitely have a pro dinosaur bias. I mean, Morant is the best of the kind of heralded rookies. So here's the thing. Rookies in the NBA are terrible on defense usually and put into bad situations on offense. Um, And if you're an NBA rookie who basically has a roughly even plus minus rating, then that bodes extremely well for how you're going to be down the road. Um, That's basically where Morant is, right? He's plus 0.8. On offense, minus 1.4. On defense, right? You know, I mean, that's actually extremely promising, and the kind of forward-looking part of Raptor will like him a lot for that. But yeah, usually if you take rookies who are, who are a couple of years older and kind of fully formed, then they're going to be probably better in the short run, right? And there's a trade-out there between you can draft a guy who's a junior or a senior coming out of college and get like a useful part, um, or a guy who went undrafted, right? Um, you know, Kendrick Nunn's another guy who Raptor likes a lot, at least falling a bit over the course of the year. Um, but like, you know, number one, it's like not been, I mean, I love Zion. Plus 2.2 as a rookie is crazy good, right? Not that many minutes yet, but like plus 2.2 as a rookie is like extremely rare. People just don't know like how steep the learning curve is in the NBA, especially on defense for rookies. And so you just have to kind of adjust your, your priors for that. And because you can kind of like see with these guys, like the athleticism, right? You can see the version of Morant that's going to be a superstar player, right? You can see flashes of it, but, like, you're not watching the moments when he, when he blows an assignment on defense. You're not watching the possessions that he uses badly. Those don't make the highlight reels. No, right? And, you know, maybe if he was actually on a team where, I guess the Grizzlies are competitive, right? But on a team where, like, he was on a four-seed or something, then, then it might be a little bit different. And, in fact, sometimes the rookies who are on better teams, like, when he's Tybal is, like, better, but, you know... 
Yeah, and, and that applies to Davis and and Nunn also. You know, it's probably easier to be a rookie in a reduced but highly efficient role than it is to take on John Morant's workload. And I I definitely agree with you, Nate, uh, to your point about that. It's just important that he is close to z- zero as a close to average as a rookie. It's it's not really. I don't think as much about the degree to which you're over average. Maybe Zion Williamson could be proving that wrong, but you don't want them to come out and play like RJ Barrett, basically. That might be a red flag, you know, as long as they don't avoid the really, really I bad mean, yeah. sub replacement uh, rookie season, then, you know, they're going to the be Colin fine. Sexton, Kevin Knox, the, right? The, yeah. yeah, right, exactly. The, the Sexton Knox. Uh, provision. <laughs> I don't know what we would call it. <laughs> this is the part of the show where we stop briefly to uh, bash on the Knicks, um, <laughs> which is always a, a fun part. <laughs> um, so in in the rest of um, Bill Simmons's hot take, so he goes on to explain his frustration of watching sports and feeling a certain way about players, but then having data contradict that feeling. He claims it makes the games harder to enjoy. Nate, do you think Raptor is contributing to that kind of cognitive dissident, or would you argue it's making our viewing experience better? I mean, I think Raptor actually comes a lot closer to what smart NBA fans think than like the generation two metrics. It certainly captures on defense players who have good defensive reputations with some exceptions, but not that many, right? It captures the fact that like, Hey, actually scoring is good, right? Scoring a lot of points is a good thing. You heard it here first. (laughs) Um, It does not have centers being the most valuable offensive players in the league. Um, It does not overrate the importance of rebounding, right? And so I think it actually kind of gets you part of the way there. Um, You know, again, things like help defense, these teammate interactions are hard to model potentially. Um, But also, again, measuring how well a guy has played, how much value he's contributed, how good he is. You know, what he projects going forward these are all kind of subtly different things. People kind of conflate them with, with one another. Um, and to force you to have, in Raptor's case, both Raptor and Predator, to have two separate definitions, but say this is mathematically how we're going to define this, right? And there's a lot of thinking about, like, what is the right way to, um, to establish the problem? Like, what are we trying to solve for and optimize? And then you can say, okay, you know, Bill, you might have a different view on a player, but, like, you're trying to solve for something different than than Raptor is, right? And this gets into a lot of those complaints about the Rockets um, that you always hear on Twitter. Uh, people complaining about, you know, their style of play being ugly or, you know, unwatchable. And I, I do think that it is sort of a, they're after something different than maybe Adam Silver is after out of basketball. What? Wins? I they they want wins. After. Yes, exactly. You know, they, uh, they, they want wins and have, have sort of determined the best way to try to get that. And does that automatically equate to entertainment product? Not necessarily, but that's not really on the Rockets to modify their play style to be more entertaining. If it hurts their ability to win, maybe it's incumbent upon the league instead to be able to, you know, not incentivize teams to play a more, you know, a less visually appealing style. Uh, and and there are a lot of great people at the league that are sort of gaming out these things all the time, um, trying to figure out, you know, how do we make a better product for the television? It's like a different, you know... 
the, the Rockets are one franchise uh, in the league, and there's a whole other wing of the NBA product team that's you know sort of trying to work on the aesthetics of the game. Well, the new Rockets are fun to watch. The new Rockets are also. more fun. I wholeheartedly agree. decided to get agree. way shorter, and then it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of space. Short players obviously. are fun. Yeah, short yeah. players. Well, there's like two guys up in every possession, right? Um, and Westbrook is now used in a way it's a lot of fun, right? Um, I also kind of dispute the premise. Maybe this is just me being contrarian, but what we think of as visually appealing or aesthetically appealing or entertaining has changes all the time, right? And so if you're used to one style of play from when you watched Michael Jordan or whatever, then yeah, maybe you don't love the Rocket style of play, but that doesn't make that necessarily the best or the only type of play. So I think it, the more we get used to... Like now, when I watch a Bucks game, I'm not like, ugh, another three pointer. <laughs> I mean, I think we're getting more used to that, right? Also, I love three pointers. I've never really understood the anger towards the three pointers. Yeah, come on, mentality. Have you, have you watched like an old NBA game ever? They're, ter- yeah, they're right. ugly. It's yeah. terrible. They're yeah, all just yeah, standing yeah. around and fouling whoever and fouling drives in the lane, right? Yeah. yeah. What's fun about that? I don't know. Give. I don't need mid range shots. Give me dunks and threes, and I'm good. <laughs> Um, so the player tracking data is a significant component of Raptor. In the most recent collective bargaining agreement proposed by the NFL Players Association, there's a clause that would prohibit player tracking data from being used in contract negotiations. Neil, what do you think about that proposal? Why are, why are players wary of that data? Yeah, that's really interesting because on the one hand, you kind of look at that and think, are we going to be judging salaries based on yards still, uh, you know, for, for years and years to come? Um, but I think also at the same time, the, the players are wary of it because we've seen sort of how it can be used against them, how uh, it can shift the, the yardsticks that, you know, they go into their career thinking that they're going to be rewarded for. Uh, and, and it makes for such a more moving tar- uh, target. And to our point earlier that we were talking about with needing time to be able to kind of fully process the meaning of this data. In the NFL, it's way more complicated than it was in basketball, uh, and and we're just sort of starting to scratch the surface of what it means in, in a much you know, easier to model sport, uh, at least at the individual level. So, you know, I, I don't blame them for, for sort of not wanting that to instantaneously be put in. Uh, and I think if it was, and, and they knew what they were being judged on, there are ways that you can kind of game things. You know, I go back to hockey, great example. You know, when, when Corsi shot attempts basically uh, were known to be a, a benchmark that players were, were using to be, you know, for contract negotiations and that they were being judged on in their teams, players started shooting really low quality shots at the net just oh, to kind true? of juice. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Just to juice the Corsi numbers for their team when they were on the ice. And it became sort of a meaningless target. I think anytime you know what the target is, it devalues it uh, in, in a certain way. And so I think... You know that that is a risk also with with well, this and new the, player and the more you're data. using proxies instead of you know so puck possession I think is important in the NHL. Right? It is yes, but if is. you're using shots to measure puck possession, then that is a discontinuity. And, like, and there could be proxy. You mentioned the miles traveled um, right. for for perimeter defense. Yeah, in theory, if Raptor, you know, you could run around a lot. You could run around in circles and and well, juice your, your really defensive high. Raptor. And and maybe that's also one of the concerns with the player tracking data in football is just. You know the unexpected ways in which it might lead to different players being valued for things that they can kind of 
game. But wasn't isn't that already the case just with regular stats? I mean, so Russell Westbrook gets criticized for like getting every rebound because his teammates are like, no, no, go ahead. Um, so, like, <laughs> right. and wasn't that part of if he were in so a there are more negotiation? The NBA has kept track of contested versus uncontested rebounds, which is pretty important. Also, um, offensive rebounds are, are, like, three times more valuable than defensive rebounds, basically. Um, you can also look, look at what type of shot the rebound was received on. So rebounding, rebounding a free throw miss... The defense gets that ball 90% of the time. Therefore, it's not as valuable as like a missed layup. Actually, that goes back to the offense like 37% of the time. And so it's much more valuable um, to secure that rebound defensively. Yeah. So, I mean, I think players could already go, you know, have their agents go and say, you know, I had this many more rebounds than anyone else on my team. And that already might not have been indicative of whether that player was actually valuable to the team. So it feels like kind of a... And also, a little bit. which players tend to um, produce more offensive rebounds from their shooting is a bit of an underrated quality. Um, guys who are like slashers, right, who finish around the rim a lot, um, you actually, again, missed layups result in an offensive rebound fairly often. Three-pointers less, but mid-range shots really not very much at all. So, in fact, if anything, mid-range shots are even worse than their reputation because they don't result in, um, in offensive rebounds very often. So for years, we kind of lived and died by Elo. And Elo loves the hot hand, right? Elo, kind of a team would go on a 10-game winning streak. It's like, this team is the best team since, um, you know, Bill <laughs> Russell's Celtics, right? Um, I do wonder if some blend of Elo and Raptor might predict better. Because Raptor's almost like, you know what? This regular season stuff, 82 games, eh, who cares? We have good priors about how good the teams are, right? It's almost the other extreme where it kind of almost seems to ignore the regular season. So I think maybe having some, some mix of those to account for a team's current, current form, so to speak, might be worthwhile. I think we can leave that there. Uh, Raptor is super fun. We're going to be excited to see how it, you know, over the whole season, how it compared to past versions of our NBA predictions. So that'll be something to keep your eye on once the season is over. Let's pause for a quick word from this week's sponsor, ZipRecruiter. The best teams start with great talent, but finding the right people can be a challenge. Now there's one place you can go to assemble your team where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. When it comes to hiring for your business, ZipRecruiter can help you find the right candidates for your team fast, from healthcare to manufacturing to business services and more. And now you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right skills and experience for your job, and it actively invites them to apply. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on the site get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash T-A-K-E-D-O-W-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories. Some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. 
Neil, take it away. Sure. So this week, I wanted to use the rabbit hole to plug an interactive that will be launching soon. Uh, it's by our colleague, visual journalist, Ryan Best. And we know uh, visual interactives, they work great in the podcast medium. Uh, <laughs> but I'll try to do my best to talk uh, through the data and the interesting things that he found. So basically, he's been gathering data on all NBA player contracts, had 514 contracts to be exact, uh, to plot their salaries against their production as measured by, you guessed it, Raptor. Uh, And so according to his analysis, first, there were some obvious clusters of players that jumped out. There were the superstars uh, who are earning every penny of their huge deals. These are players that are getting paid at least uh, about $17 million and are on pace to have uh, at least 10 wins above replacement by the end of the season. There's currently only nine players in that category, uh, and the three most cost-effective superstars in the league have been no surprise, James Harden, LeBron James, and Giannis Antetokounmpo. You've heard of them. Those are the one through three in Raptor war in general. And I think it's telling because due to the max salary rule in the NBA's collective bargaining agreement, you basically can never pay these megastars enough money to really fairly compensate them for the amount of value that they generate. So the NBA's basically made LeBron a bargain, uh, as, as amazing as that is to say. There's two other classes of really cost-effective players. There's young stars who are still on their rookie contracts, so Luka Doncic jumps out in that. And then hidden gems like Duncan Robinson of the Heat. These guys are on super cheap deals. Maybe they were undrafted. Maybe they were drafted really late generating a ton of value, uh, and you can build a whole team around these types of players. Miami actually has done that a lot, getting tons of production out of younger, cheaper guys next to Jimmy Butler, of course, and they currently have the league's eighth-best efficiency margin. But we aren't really here to focus on those good players providing value to their teams. We want to talk about the opposite kind of players, (laughs) those who have been raking in the cash but not really playing well, or at all in a lot of cases. So in Ryan's research, he found that there were 50 players this year that are getting paid a combined $234 million despite not playing a single game. Zero games played between all these players. Now, a lot of it can be explained by injuries. So John Wall, Kevin Durant, and Clay Thompson alone make up $108 million of the 234. But there are some funny ones on there. Uh, like, for instance, players who are being paid a ton of money, but are literally not on the team that is paying them anymore. So Miles Plumley, he's getting paid $12.5 million by the Grizzlies right now. And he's currently playing for the Perth Wildcats of Australia's National Basketball League. Uh, <laughs> and meanwhile, Josh Smith, you guys remember Josh Smith? Uh, he hasn't played an NBA game in 854 days, but he's being paid $5.3 million by the Pistons this year. Uh, and so those are the least cost-effective players in the game because you can't really help a team win if you are literally not in the NBA. It's harder. Maybe anymore. they're helping the team by not playing. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, we saw right? some some of those Josh Smith shooting yeah. years uh, from three. Uh, but the Josh Smith tidbit also made me think of a really funny footnote from NBA history, just speaking of players who are paid despite not being in basketball. So I thought back to a particular trade in February 2008 that made Keith Van Horn $4.3 million despite not having played a single game in two years. So the Mavs needed to make a trade. It was a Jason Kidd trade with the Nets, and they needed to match salaries. They thought they had had things worked out. Uh, But then one of their players used his bird rights to decline a trade uh, and, and block it, and they, they needed to scramble to match the salaries or the trade would fall through, and it was very near the deadline. 
So they called up Keith Van Horn, well, probably Keith Van Horn's agent, and they used a cap hold that they had on him. And a cap hold is when a team holds on to a, they never officially renounce a player's rights. They just hold on to them. They're almost certainly retired by that point, but they keep them, if, especially if they're over the cap, in order to potentially include them in a trade to match salaries because salaries have to match within plus or minus 25% of the amount going in and out. So, all of this was to say that Keith Van Horn's $4.3 million salary cap hold was then used to match the salary with the Jason Kidd trade. And so one day, Keith Van Horn, two years after playing, got a call from his agent and was like, Keith, I got good news for you today. You just made $4.3 million. And all he had to do was like fly to New Jersey, you know, take a physical or something, fail the physical, obviously. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then uh, you know, he, he, he was able to cash that money in. And it used to be a very common practice. I think it's a little bit less so now, uh, but especially for teams that were over the salary cap for a long period of time, to just hold on to these players' cap holds. Uh, and the players, of course, they would never officially file their retirement papers with the league because that would sort of you know, end the possibility to use them as a cap hold. Uh, and so it was a mutually beneficial thing because even though it was rare, on the off chance that they needed to be included in a trade Keith Van Horn style, they could potentially make uh, money off of it. So as recently as 2014, I want to read off some names to you that were still on the Los Angeles Lakers list of cap holds, okay? Ron Harper. Remember, this is 2014. Carl Malone, Theo Ratliff, (laughs) Horace Grant, uh, John Sally. Mitch Richmond, all of those guys could theoretically have been included in a trade that the Lakers made as recently as 2014, even though they were like stars of the 1990s NBA. Uh, and I'm not sure if they closed this up uh, in, in the most recent John CBA, uh, but it, it's always fun to me to think that um, potentially Carl Malone could have made $1.8 million like a decade plus after he played in the NBA if he had been included in a trade. I, and yeah, I really love that. I feel like other employers should do that. I I think five thirty eight should, <laughs> yeah, like could hold the contract rights to someone just in case we need to make a trade with like the New York Times. So we can like trade Harry Enten. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Harry Enten would you know still yeah. we'd have a cap hold what on him. What if we get back CNN. from CNN for? <laughs> We get yeah, we get anything from CNN. <laughs> we let him go as a you know we thought we could resign him right. We should have traded him with a year to go. No, we missed. Yeah, our draft we really misplayed that. Yeah. yeah, who was our GM at that time? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for coming out at Sloan to see us. We really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, thank you. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. Everyone here should subscribe. You all subscribe, right? I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. Please also review and rate the show. Do it. Really, it really helps. And I read every single review, so please. She does. I do, obsessively. Don't hurt Sarah's feelings. (laughs) You can also email us at podcast at 538 to tell us what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Today is Grace's last show with Hot Takedown. We will miss her terribly. Tony Chow is normally in the control room, but today he's been just off stage. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Nate, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Thanks, guys. Thank